Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined not as always by David Air Hahn. Dimitri is doing some important personal things in his life. You know, nothing, nothing bad, nothing crazy, but, you know, keep him in your prayers. It's some good stuff going on. But joined by David, we're here to talk about some of the news, talk about the upcoming Turkish elections prep you for our big live stream coming up where we're going to be covering that it's great to have you here david christ is risen how are you doing truly he is risen and i'm i'm happy to be here i'm happy to play the little co-host uh for at least this episode maybe even in the future episode hey maybe at the end of the day i might end up co-opting your channel i don't think that's going to happen but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. I think there's going to be a lot of exciting stuff that we can talk about, particularly one of the things that I want to talk a little bit about. And I was kind of thinking about talking about this in my channel too, but I think discussing this with you is actually something that I'd prefer. Uh, I think it's, it's better. I think we can get uh, a better insight. And as you said, one of the things that we're going to be talking about is going to be the Turkish elections. But before we get to the Turkish elections, it's kind of just as an update, what exactly is going on in Russia? What's, what, what are the newest happenings? Well, for everybody who, you know, has a Twitter and a Telegram, I'm sure you've seen the images of the big flare-up explosion over the Russian Senate building in the Kremlin that is near, you know, the general residence and government offices of the entire Russian Federation's, you know, central government. And it appears that the Ukrainians attempted a drone attack of that building. As far as I'm aware, it actually looks like they may have been going for the Russian flag atop it and missed. And this has been all of the buzz about, you know, the Ukraine war, of course, the upcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive, which seems to have been pushed back more and more, was the big news. And this has kind of overshadowed that in the past week. But it, it, you know, there were striking images, and immediately Zelensky, who conveniently was in Finland at the time that this happened, immediately said that this was the Russians, that the Ukrainians aren't interested and don't have enough weapons, supposedly, to launch an attack on Moscow like that. And of course, the U.S. immediately said it had nothing to do with it, obviously, which is more believable than Ukraine having nothing to do with it. They all, of course, were saying this was a Russian false flag, basically. This was an attempt for Russia to have an excuse to escalate, to begin targeting officials like Zelensky. And of course, after this happened, what did Medvedev, you know, the vice chair of the Russian Security Council, former president of Russia, what did he say? He said, well, the only solution to this now is to target Zelensky himself and his clique, because, you know, they perceive this as an assassination attempt on Vladimir Putin, who was not even there at the time, of course, which it seems to me that if the Russians were trying to truly fake it like that, they could have made him be there right? Because if it was a false flag, he wouldn't have been in any danger. I think that kind of makes sense. And of course, if the Ukrainians were going to do it, it would make a lot of sense for Zelensky to not be there in case of a possible immediate retaliation on Kiev, where, oh, he's conveniently in where? Finland, which what was just extremely recently signed on into NATO, thanks to Turkish accession, which will be one of the things me and David talk about here in a minute. But it seems that this was, in fact, a Ukrainian attempt. It could have been by Ukrainian saboteurs within Russia. I don't have all the details on exactly where it originated from. It does seem another one of the reasons I thought that it would be really stupid for the Kremlin and Moscow to do this themselves is this is just bad optics. Like, is it really the best look to say that, you know, this podunk country down there that sure, they're outfitted with all the Western weapons, but you're supposedly taken, you know, like a sixth of their territory. 
and they're supposedly now able to launch drones not just into your capital deep into your country but at the actual federal buildings themselves like i don't think that's the best look for this you know supposed second third most powerful military in the world you know in russia and so that's all the more reason why I think this truly was a Ukrainian attempt. And I think that in the midst of the fall of Bakhmut and the other general demoralizations due, that have you know, caused the delaying of the spring counteroffensive from Ukraine, that this was an attempt to boost morale, to get that flag burning up on top of that Senate building in Moscow, you know, one piece style or whatever. And the, you know, to boost the morale of the Ukrainian troops to maybe even, apparently I'm seeing reports of a counteroffensive in Bakhmut itself. Yevgeny Prigozhin has reported as much. So I don't know necessarily why they would relaunch it in Bakhmut. I guess it just really is that important for the myriad of reasons that Dmitry and I have discussed on past shows. But yeah, this is, this is the big news. This is kind of, you know, what the Kremlin is working on now is they are, I believe they are going to escalate. Of course, we've been a bit disappointed in some of the potential opportunities for escalations in the past. But I think this is one of the biggest things since the Kerch Bridge bombing, as far as a shift in rhetoric is going to go. So we may see some big things happen. I'm not necessarily expecting Zelensky to get a bomb through his window anytime soon, but I guess stranger things have happened. David, do you have any thoughts on this development? I I agree with what you think about the whole like false flag stuff. I think also Ukraine has shown us and it's I don't think I I don't really believe it because I believe Russia is virtuous or anything. I think it's rather that Ukraine is a very vicious country and has a very vicious diplomacy. And it's not this is not something that they wouldn't do. Uh, Let's not forget that the unaliving of Daria Dugina happened quite recently, uh, which, you know, you will think it, you know, that person, she's not really that high profile. But, you know, it, it just makes you think that these people are always thinking about these kinds of, you know, selective pickings and such. And we, we already know what they're doing to the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. Uh, I think you already covered this in your show enough, so I'm not going to repeat some of the stuff that you said. But we already have a very good idea of the kind of character that uh, the leadership of Ukraine is exhibiting, which is very unfortunate. But it also seems to me that they can really attempt anything and they can get away with it. And uh, a comment about Medvedev, uh, seeing his tweets, it's always a fun time because... He, he tweets like a very, I don't know how to say it, but he, he tweets like a very violent cheerleader. I mean, it, these, those are some really powerful, boomer-esque, like long-form Facebook-type t- tweets. Um, I don't really necessarily agree with everything he says or anything like that, but it's, it's, it's quite funny to see it, though I think there is some points to you know what he makes, seeing, as, as I said, the character of the leadership of Ukraine. Uh, having said that, I think we can move on a little bit about one of the important countries to this conflict and something very important that is going on, which is the election, the election in Turkey. And Turkey is an important country because generally speaking, within the region, Turkey has strong military capacities and it, you know, geographically, they're located in a very strategic position. Uh, they're technically neighbors of Russia, right? They share the same sea in a sense. And you know, a couple of years before, you know, they were very much an important player in, in Syria. And one of the presidential candidates, uh, Dr. Sinan Oan, made a point, and I think it's a very interesting point, is that Turkey needs to understand that they're not just any, any country. That if the United States or Russia wants to be successful in Syria or in the whole Ukraine situation, whoever it is, they need to understand, they need to know that, you know, you have to have Turkey on your side because of the kind of advantages that it gives you. 
to kind of give you an idea, one of the things that Erdogan is campaigning on is the things that he's doing. And one of the things that he's doing is the military armaments and, and the technology and the technological upgrades and the sales of these armaments um, are very important. Uh, and Erdogan is making a very clear point about, you know, hey, this happened in my administration and we're making use of it, right? We are upgrading our military capacity and this is very important for our national defense, but also important for prestige and diplomacy, which is very needed for Turkey. But to kind of get into the election, I think it will be good to get into some of the history, some of the lore, particularly as it relates to foreign policy. And then we can move on to what's happening within Turkey itself, because it happens it happens to affect foreign policy. But really, when Erdogan's party got elected and, and started to gain power, started to gain control over different areas of the government, Turkey was in a very precarious situation. It was in a situation where you had people in, you had a situation where P Turkey could potentially get into the European Union. And so it was stuck in a situation where, okay, should we go Western route? Should we just kind of be ourselves? Should we go to the Middle Eastern route? And within, you know, there was, there was a lot of fluctuations, but Turkey legitimately had a chance at, in some sense to have some visa-free entry into Europe or joining the European Union and joining the European market. And in my, a lot of things happened. But I think one of the biggest reasons is the whole Davos crisis, also known as the one-minute moment in 2009, when Erdogan, in the World Economic Forum, which is a name we all know, uh, in World Economic Forum, he had a, he had, a, he had you know, there was, a, there was this kind of moderated dialogue between him and Perez, who was the president of Israel. And during the, during this, you know, during the, the, this, the talks, he just started saying one minute, one minute, one minute, started to protest against some of the things that Paris was saying. And he cited the Palestinian conflict and basically blamed Israel for it, basically saying that, you know, you're the reasons why people are, un you know, being unalived in the streets and things like this. And he then said, you know, I'm never joining Davos again. Right. And the basic theme here is that at that point, it became very clear in, the, in foreign policy and diplomacy that Turkey started to move towards a more more f away from the unipolar system and more to a multi multipolar system do you have any comments before i move on further conrad no i think that's a really important moment to kind of it, it's kind of a similar thing when you read about the putin speeches that were going on in like 07 and 09 that really proved him like russia and putin was putin was kind of a wef kind of crony at the beginning like he was someone that saw integration with the west as possible but then after seven plus years in Russian politics, he kind of realized what the real play was and what the interests that these moneyed powers had over Russia and their real goals, which was ultimately its balkanization and even further financial rape. So he came out as a nationalist and started giving all these speeches like the Munich speech and some of these others in 07 and, and onward that really turned away. And that was when we knew that Europe and Russia were never going to be able to kind of reconcile those issues. And Erdogan is kind of that putin-esque figure in turkey but for everybody that hasn't be sure to watch our last episode with, that we had david on with dimitri was joining us there it's a great one has almost six thousand views on our channel on youtube where we cover the earthquake in turkey and you know these elections as their status was a few months ago so these elections are heating up and everything so david the thing i really want you to explain before we get into some of the candidates the ideas the details some of the conflicts that could come out of the results of this elections let people know when is it happening and how does it work how does this election system work in turkey with the candidates with runoffs you know how is it going to go down because you know most of our listeners here are in the anglosphere 
Yeah, so uh, in May 14, there's going to be an election and there, people are going to be voting for the president. Uh, Turkey is not. They moved away from a parliamentary system to a presidential system due to a referendum. And one of the main things that you know, Erdogan's opposition is promising is that they're going to go back to the parliamentary system and strengthen parliamentary system in their own way. So it's May 14th on a Sunday. And uh, you're also going to be voting for, you know, who's going to be the uh, representative in the uh, in the assembly, right? So you're going to be voting for your Turkish people are going to be voting for that rather. So that's basically how it's going to work. And if all the candidates got below 50%, that is, you know, in the first tour, because there's going to be four, you know, candidates basically for this election, what's going to happen is that it's going to go to the second round of it, the two highest vote, voted ones. And the main competition is between Erdogan, President Erdogan, and Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who's the, you know, who's basically the leader of the Republican, pe- uh, the Republican People's Party, right, Cumhuriyet Halk Partisi, uh, which is the party that Atatürk himself founded, right? So there's, there's, there, there are various different parties that are in coalition with both sides, and this has been a you know, hot topic of the debate, you know, who should we vote for, you know, and people are looking at the, uh, the, the, the coalition parties. And one interesting thing you can see is that both have some skeletons in their closet. I think we can get into that uh, as, as time goes on. But that's the basic idea of, of the Turkish election. So, you know, if the election doesn't end in the first tour, in, in the first round, then it's going to go to the second round, most likely between Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu and uh, President Erdogan. The other two candidates are Muharrem Ince, who used to be part of the People's Republican Party, uh, and he's more of—I will say—he's more of a purist because a lot of he has a lot of criticisms, not towards Erdogan. He is critical of him, of course, but his criticisms really are against the uh, against Kılıçdaroğlu and his coalition. And Dr. Sinanoğan, who represents the nationalists. And one final note is that Kılıçdaroğlu. Uh, Kind of, rep- he's the presidential candidate of the table of six. Now you might ask yourself, what is a table of six? A table of six is basically six party leaders uh, who got together around a year ago, I believe, to kind of discuss how we can get into the strengthened parliamentary system and, and discussing about what they want to do. You know, what what kind of what kind of ideas that they want to campaign for and how they're going to work with each other in order to maintain this system. What's really interesting is that um, I believe half of them are basically ex, you know, they used to be from Erdogan's party, right? Um, now, two of them are used to be from Erdogan's party. One of them is Temel Karamollolu, who in my, I mean, he's he's pro-Sharia, which is pretty interesting to see that. Um so yeah, that's basically I think I will say the kind of backstory, right? Totally, and I think it's really funny to contextualize this with again with kind of World War Now and where we're coming at this in our last show with David. David laid out all the candidates, and this was before the table of six had united behind Kilitsdorolu, and we've been talking. And David had said that yeah, as far as like you know a more NATOist pro-Western candidate. He's the guy, but ultimately he's unpopular. He's kind of always a bit of a buffoon politician. He's, you know, kind of seized defeat from the jaws of victory multiple times. And then, you know, a few, a little bit later, everyone united behind him. And we had said before that everyone had united behind him, that he would be the most likely candidate to 
facilitate and accelerated what we call a Saint Paisios moment or the fulfillment of certain prophecies that we believe will stem from the war in Ukraine and result in a Russo-Turkish conflict in some, some capacity. And under Erdogan, of course, we know he's maintained the Ukrainian policy and everything regarding neutrality and is even now opening up, turning Turkey into a gas hub with Putin. I think this is also a big move for electoral relevance because Russia is a lot more popular in Turkey than the United States is. But ultimately, Kilicherlu has said that he is going to, you know, close ties, implement closer ties with America, the EU. I think he's courting voters with the possibility of visa-free travel to the European Union, which I know you mentioned before, David. So with all of that in mind, and Kilicherlu has also tried to assuage um, fears that he will shift up Ukraine policy and has said, you know, I think my opinion, mostly for electoral purposes, that he's not going to shift Turkey's policy. So on all of that, David, what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, uh, you mentioned how Kulishtarolu kind of, you know, ended up being the candidate selected. Well, there there is a lot of controversy at that point because they were already late and they still didn't get a candidate. They, didn't, they still didn't get behind a specific candidate or who they wanted to choose. So there were a couple of options. And the main options were either it's going to be Kulishtarolu, who was the most unpopular option, right? And then there was Mansur Yavash, who is also part of Kulishtarolu's party. Uh, he is the mayor of Ankara. And he is... He's a Kemalist, but with a more nationalist bent, let's say, right? He's basically more nationalistic, uh, who Meral Lekshener basically wanted, I, I think, and there was a lot of news basically saying that, that you know, he was Meral Lekshener's choice. Meral Lekshener is the E-party uh, leader who is one of the other parties that is in the table of six, right? So she's, a na- she's the head of the, nas- the other nationalist party. There's, there's one nationalist party, there's pro-Erdogan. E-party is the uh, other nationalist party. And then there was also Ekrem Imamoglu, who's the mayor of Istanbul. And he I, he was also very popular, right? And he's he's considered to be a very good politician when it comes to elections, right? So there were those three options, and a lot of people were debating. A lot of people were debating between Mansur Yavash and Ekrem Imamoglu. It seemed to be that Mansur particularly will be the most popular one, right? Because he will be able to consolidate a lot of different different people from different parties, but Kulishtarolu got selected, and then Meral Akshener from the E-Party left the table of six. She left the table of six. She started criticizing the table of six. And then there were further discussions with her. And what happened afterwards is that it was announced that it's not only is Kemal Kulishtarolu going to be the candidate, but his, quote, vice presidents are going to be the other potential candidates, which in this case is Ekrem Imamoglu and Mansur Yavash. So from being a very horrific situation, like it, it, it ended up being a horrific situation and it got recovered into a complete consolidation of all of the bases of the opposition, well, except for Muharrem Inje, right? And his main point, and this kind of gets into the coalition part, because this is very important, right? You need to kind of understand this in order to understand the voter base and what they think. So a lot of people are very critical of Erdogan because, well, there's an earthquake, there's the economic situation, there's a lot of different things. There's a lot of different reasons why a lot of people are critical of Erdogan. And some of them are like very, very, um, it's very difficult to disprove those, right? particularly the economic one. And a, a, a very, there's a very minor party within his coalition that raises some eyebrows, and that is the Hudapar party. 
I'm going to say it directly. Hudapar is basically Hezbollah. They're, they're basically the Hezbollah party, like straight up. They're the Hezbollah extension in Turkey. Um, they are very open about it, right? They're very open about Hezbollah support. They're, uh, they're basically one Sharia law. They're, and what's interesting is that they're like a Kurdish party. They're a Kurdish Sharia party too. And so that, that, that is the case with Hudapar. A lot of people are obviously very scandalized, right? I mean, how can you be in in the same group as this people. So it seems like, okay, well, this means that Erdogan cannot win. Well, if you go to the other side, there's an even bigger problem, which sounds very crazy, but there's a bigger problem in the other side. And that is what is, well, they're currently, they're trying to rebrand themselves into the the, uh, the Green Left Party, right? Uh, prior to that, they were the People's Republic Party. And it's mainly the, it's the, it's you can think of it as the Kurdish party, but the main issue with that party, particularly amongst the leadership, is that many of its leaders, many of its leaders have openly supported Abdullah Öcalan, who is a terrorist, an actual terrorist of the PKK. He has, you know, you can go look up his history. It's, it's not really debated, right? Uh, there's no conspiracy theory where he's like, oh, actually, he was a good guy. No, like, he is an unironic terrorist. And... People of this party, like the, the leaders of this party, not everyone, but the leaders of this party, Salatin Demirtas, for example, openly supported them, openly supported the terrorists. So, and guess guess what? These people account for 10% of the votes from the last election. So there's a big voter base and Kılıçdaroğlu gets support from them. So now there's there are two sides with big skeletons in their closet. And this is one of the biggest reasons why this election is in a very strange situation. It's much, it's like, the Trump-Clinton situation for normies, except it's 100 times worse. Because, well, Trump didn't have a Hezbollah party or a terrorist party behind him. Now, Clinton probably did. But, you know, Trump didn't, at least. But in Turkey, it's like, it's clear, right? It's every, it's clear for everyone to see. So that's kind of a very interesting situation that one must think about. And how this is going to affect uh, international politics is that... As I said, Erdogan is following, generally speaking, with, with foreign policy, he is following this kind of neutral attitude towards different world events. And this is a policy that Turkey has adopted since the Second World War, right? This kind of neutrality policy. They're not exactly like Switzerland in that regard, but they generally, they're generally trying to be neutral in most conflicts, not in all of them. For example, in Syria, they were certainly not that neutral, right? But uh, another thing that Erdogan, as I've said, does is that he is opposed to the unipolar world order. And... To understand Kılıçdaroğlu, we, we, we can't really look at the things that he says because, as I made I made this point in the first stream, every Turkish voter base, like they care about national sovereignty, right? This is one of the biggest presuppositions of, of this country. So you can't really say anything super pro-Western, but you can, you can kind of see a pro-Western bent in some of the pro, uh, promises like the visa-free entry into Europe. Now, how are you going to achieve that? Well, you're going to be able to, you're going to achieve that if you do the do the quote writing about the Ukraine situation, if you, for example, you know, remove the kind of restrictions to you know Skittles, if you sign the Istanbul Convention into into law, right? For example, if you do these things, which all of these things that I've listed, Kılıçdaroğlu is all for them, right? He's 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 completely supportive of all of these things that I've listed. And Erdogan made a very interesting tweet. Um, he's saying, first of all, he's saying that Kılıçdaroğlu is supporting. Skittle stuff, which is one of the things, what is one of the biggest problems in Europe, right? So he openly calls that out. And he also makes the point that, you know, 
the, the table of six actually has a hidden seventh member and he's basically hinting at the fact that the terrorists are part of the are under the table so to speak so i think those are some of the important and crucial points to kind of understand uh the turkish election and and of course there's going to affect because as i said with, with when it comes to turkey's foreign policy we can very clearly see that if Kılıçdaroğlu does get elected then turkey it might calm down on the opposition to unipolarism at the very least and this might be kind of a big deal for people who are rooting for china people who are rooting for russia i'm not saying i'm one of those people but i'm just kind of making a point that you know turkey is indeed a very important strategic country and even though it failed in my estimation failed in syria because it tried to be the middle eastern power as we can see turkey is not a middle eastern power because there's america remove america from the picture and turkey will take out the entire middle east and this is not really too controversial, I don't think. But, and Turkey failed to be able to do that. But they are still a very important country and a very important potential ally, both for the United States and for Russia. Well, I want to talk about a lot of great stuff there. I want to talk about NATO because that's one of the biggest ways that Turkey flexes its muscles on the foreign policy stage as, you know, an early member, the arguably the second most powerful. Well, if you exclude Ukraine, which isn't technically in NATO, but is a NATO army, you know, Turkey has basically the second most powerful army in NATO in some regards. And so my question is, if Kilix Doroglu, is he, uh, will NATO, is his opinions on NATO in the West? And, you know, you make, I know he's tried to distance himself from the obvious pro-Western stuff. Like, what's the popularity of NATO? And if Erdogan wins, is there a possibility that Turkey leaves? Because we know he let Finland in, but kept Sweden out, which I think was him kind of taking that middle road to not be targeted too hard by the West. But it seems that's failed as a democratic coalition of basically everybody against Erdogan has risen, which is how the West, you know, quote unquote, democratically overthrows these perceived strongman authoritarians that they don't like, you know, like Putin, Lukashenko, Assad, these people. And and we've heard that there's a chance that Turkey, you know, could leave NATO. Do you think that's a possibility? And if Kılıçdaroğlu gets in, could Sweden be admitted into NATO? Uh, if Kılıçdaroğlu gets in, I think Sweden, there's really nothing stopping Sweden from entering into NATO. And as I said, the, the reason I've explained some of the reasons is because you know, Kılıçdaroğlu has many promises that he made, many of the things that he wants to do. And in order to be able to do some of these things, he has to get approval from Big Daddy Europe. About the about leaving NATO, I think that's n- not possible at all. And there's a very simple reason. If Turkey does leave NATO, uh, Turkey will be in a very, very, very difficult situation. First of all, the whole Greece situation, I mean, that will pretty much solve by itself because now Turkey can't do anything against against Greece at all uh, due to the whole islands controversy and also they will be basically giving up the, some of the power that they have some of the d- diplomatic influence they have on the west right even though turkey is moving to the middle east and they're trying to get influence and they're trying to get support from the middle east even though they're trying to do that and they're trying to accomplish that uh, they still want to have ties with europe right they still want to have ties with the west they're not trying to dis like trying to completely move away they want to be able to have at least, you know, they want to be able to sit at the Western table while also being able to sit at the Eastern table, so to speak. They want to have both. And if they leave NATO, they're basically, that, that will basically be saying, uh, we're not going to be sitting on your table. And we're, 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 total, we're completely enemies now at this point. You're basically saying that at that stage. And 
if Turkey does that, I mean, that will be one of the stupidest moves I think Turkey will do. Uh, it will be pretty much political and militaristic suicide in a lot of ways. It doesn't mean that Turkey loves NATO. It doesn't mean that Turkey is a big fan of NATO. It doesn't mean that a lot of people want us to stay in NATO and all of this kind of stuff. But it's something that it, it's one of the kind of proofs, a, a legitimate organization that Turkey is part of that allows Turkey to be, in some sense, Western, so to speak. And Turkey doesn't want to lose that. And, and a very important point that I want to make is that, in fact, kind of this Western influence is one of the biggest, at least from the beginning, one of the biggest starting points of Erdogan's party. Erdogan's party is supposed to be, in a lot of ways, a synthesis of Middle Eastern culture with Western political thought. So it will also go against, really, his own party as well, right? If you if you listen to some of his, you know, particularly his, you know, people who used to be in his party, but these views are still repeated by people in his own party, there is a very pluralistic, you know, pluralistic social democratic bent in a lot of the things that, for example, Ahmed Davutoglu says, right, who used to be in his party. And this kind of thinking that he represents, this kind of like ideal of being a pluralistic nation that has a hand in various different parts of the world, that is still one of the aims of the Turkish government, of, of the Turkish nation, really. So leaving NATO is, I think, completely out of the question. That's really interesting. Because, and you're right about the Greece thing, because the Greece thing is kind of a permanently frozen conflict that Turkey can somewhat benefit from being just objectively more powerful than Greece, because both of them are in NATO. And so they, they kind of see that as a stalemate that they could probably perhaps win over time. But that does get us to talking about, you know, the possibility of some of these prophecies going on, which again, is we watch some of our old shows where we talk about you know, some of the words of St. Paisios and Metropolitan Neophytos. And again, Metropolitan Neophytos explicitly says that Erdogan will fall and inexperienced Kemalists will take his place. And that will precipitate, pro-Westerners, he says as well, and that will precipitate a deterioration in relations with the Russians that will happen very quickly, which we've said before that Kilis Duroglu is the candidate to do something like that. But between addressing that issue and perhaps the, well, there's going to be that. And I also want to say, you said Turkey is capable of taking over the Middle East. And I agree that between uh, some of the other powers there, that they're probably the most powerful, with the exception of maybe Iran. And we've recently seen Iran reproach with Saudi Arabia and now the president of Iran and Syria. And we've recently heard Erdogan say that, and multiple people say that it's over for regime change with Assad. There's, It seems that all parties involved are accepting that he's going to be in power there and that they need to meet with him. So... As far as being enemies with Iran, it seems that the only real reason Turkey has is due to its relationship with Azerbaijan. So I'm wondering if, as well if that is going to be something that will prevent it from having as good relations with other countries in the Middle East because of the current conflict between those two countries. And as if people don't know, Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, is all in with Erdogan and is, you know, very pro, you know, Turkey and all of that. But, you know, right now them and Iran are enemy number one. Yeah, well, as so people need to understand this about Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan and Turkey, they don't see themselves as different nations. They see themselves as different governments, but they don't see themselves as different nations. Uh, that's one of the pop, very one of the very popular slogans that both countries use. If you ask a Turkish person what he thinks about in Azerbaijan, they're going to say, yeah, he's basically my blood, right? Uh, it's basically the same nation. And Turkey doesn't have the same. Turkey doesn't think this way with Kazakhstan, for example. They don't think about this with other Tur Turkey countries. It's specifically Azerbaijan, where they have this kind of thinking. So that's something very important to point out. It kind of explains why Aliyev and Erdogan obviously are tight buddies, and 
even if Kılıçdaroğlu gets elected, uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan are going to have super friendly, you know, uh, relations. Because as I said, they're based, they, they think of themselves as the same nation, right, at the end of the day. And this, which also means that Turkey is in a very awkward situation, to say the least, with, uh, with Iran, which... When you think about it, again, with the Hudapar example, who's basically the Hezbollah, the extension of Hezbollah, it seems like Iran is also making moves towards Turkey as well. Hudapar is a, is a part that existed for, for a couple of years at least, but it's really this election that, I mean, this is the election where they got in a coalition with Erdogan, right? I mean, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, and even though they only have one representative candidate who's probably not going to get elected, right? Even though that is the case, right? At the end of the day, they have gone themselves on the same side as Erdogan in this very important situation. And so I think this is something that a lot of people have to bear in mind as well with the whole Azerbaijan-Iran stuff. It seems like Iran is trying to accomplish what Turkey trying to accomplish. And this is why I said that the whole Syria stuff was a total failure uh, on, on the side of Turkey because Turkey was not able to use its military capacity as, as well as it wanted to do. And what happened instead is that Russia and Iran together established a very strong influence in, in, in the region of Syria, right? Which is the last thing Turkey wants to do because you go to the west, there's NATO, there's the west, right? Okay, you can't, you can't go there. You go to the east, well, you know, you have, you get Russia, right? You can't, you don't want to go there. Okay, so you have to go south, right? You have to go to the Middle East, but now, you know, you were on the side of the US, but the US obviously was not able to, uh, consolidate power and establish its base there. So now you have Iran, Russia, and Syria. Well, where, where are you supposed to go? Nowhere, right? You can't really go anywhere. And so Turkey is in this very, very, very strange and incredibly difficult situation. This is why I personally think a lot of what, you know, even if you don't believe in the prophecy and the St. Paisius moments, what Metropolitan Neofitos says, to be honest, I can I can see why he says that. I can see why he has the views that he, he has. And I will say that he's very insightful, much more insightful than I will expect uh, from a bishop, bishop from Cyprus, to be honest, because it, it does seem to be that this difficult situation can not really be navigated by an inexperienced loser Kemalist. And it's, I'm not saying this because I'm going to vote for him. I'm not going to vote for him. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to reveal that. I'm saying it because there's a reason why a lot of people were not big fans of him becoming a presidential candidate, right? It's because he doesn't really get much done. And this is the, one of the biggest criticisms from the opposition side, from themselves, right? This is one of their biggest criticisms, and this is why they want someone else to do something at least. So from a foreign policy standpoint, I mean, I'm going to be honest, dude, Turkey is in a, not in a good situation. Yeah, it sounds like the, well, when the uh, prophetic, you know, wise monk from the enemy country of your nation is prescribing accurate foreign policy predictions, it sounds like you know, your country may be in a bad position, you know, I think that's, that's really funny. I'm wondering, so uh, let's just get right into some of this stuff. Who is winning right now? Like, who is up in the polls? I've seen some reports from some big sample size polls that uh, Kilik Daroglu is up by 3% in some pretty big polls, but generally speaking, some people say that Erdogan tends to outperform polls, so it's basically neck and neck. Is is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, so the thing about polls in Turkey <laughs> is that all of it is BS. Um, that's kind of one of the things that we have to kind of admit. All of it is kind of BS. Like, um, this is one of the biggest criticisms of 
of the Turkish, like the way Turkey does things, especially from the opposition side, is that there's there's no like qualification. There's a lot of corruption, and a lot of different institutions and organizations that you're supposed to trust are completely sided one way or the other, right? And this goes both ways, by the way, right? Kılıçdaroğlu's party, I mean, um, they also have uh, some parts of the media machine on their side. But I'll give you one, one example with the media machine, right? The uh, the government funded news media TRT, right? They they made a graph about like how much they like showed uh, the speeches of presidential candidates, and Erdogan basically Erdogan and David Bach, they basically get like ninety five percent of the airtime, um, and the opposition like barely gets any, right? So that kind of gives you an idea, right? I mean it's it's, it's not it's not good, like it's not it's not even negative media, right? At, at least with Trump, but hey, you know at least Trump got negative media. He still got some airtime. In fact, he got the most airtime. The opposition part, they don't get any airtime, including Muharrem Ince, which you will think he'd get some airtime, but you, you got you got a little. Mm-hmm. And that's and I'm saying he, you'll think he'll get some airtime because he's legitimately crazy. I mean, he's he's barking, he's shouting, he's very aggressive, he's very agitated. Even he doesn't get any airtime. So that is that is something that happens in Turkey. And so with the with the polling system, I think there's there's different polling organizations that are BS. But I will kind of give you a basic estimate. It is very much true that most polls are saying that Kılıçdaroğlu has more votes that he's going to win, right? According to most of the polls, Kılıçdaroğlu is up. And some polls even argue that he might win this in the first round, which I personally believe that's not going to happen. And I will go one step further. I pers- th- my personal opinion, and I could be wrong, but it's like I'm talking from my experience of looking at the polls and then looking at the election result- results, I think this. I think Erdogan is going to win this in the first round. That's my personal opinion. I think he's getting this in the first round. I don't think we're getting a round two. And the reason is, as you said, Erdogan does outperform the polls. That is that is a legitimate thing. And he also has a lot of institutional control over a lot of the parts of the country, which you know you might see a Joe Biden moment during the Turkish election. Uh, so be be prepared for that. It won't be super popular online, but that that can happen too. But I think. As, as I said, if Kılıçdaroğlu is going to win, it's really going to happen in the second round, which he claims that he's going to win this in the first round again. Yeah, according to the polls, but it seems quite difficult. It, it's it. I personally don't think that it's really realistic, as, I, as I'm going to be repeating myself again, but Erdogan outperforms the polls. Erdogan consistently wins elections, and one of the biggest appeals of Erdogan is that he gets things done, right? Whether you like him or not, he gets things done. And this is one of his biggest... The biggest points that he makes, you know, oh, yeah, okay, the economy is bad. Things are going bad in this, in this country. All right, we understand that, right? But we're getting things done at least, right? We're building a, a huge, you know, armament industry, military armament industry that can compete with world powers. I mean, that's, you know, when you think about it, that's a big deal. We are manufacturing new cars, high-class cl- high cars that will be sold across all across Turkey and all across the world, right? Togs, basically. That's that's the thing, right? We're making new roads, we're making new infrastructure, we're building all of this kind of stuff. This is what we're doing, and Erdogan's main point is: look, we're doing all of this, right? And then you look at these people; all they do is talk. So you know, are you? And and they're all chaotic. They're backed by terrorists. Like when you when you listen to Erdogan talk, even for five ten minutes, and he goes on a roll about this, you you think to yourself, yeah, Erdogan, not a big fan, but I mean, he starts to you know, you start to understand why people even vote for him. It's not because Turkish people are stupid. It's because while well, he defends Islamic values and he defends certain moral values, 
right? Abortion not being one of them. Abortion is legal in Turkey. Uh, and he gets things done, right? For a lot of, for most people, they can look at that and say, yeah, I respect that. I want that to continue, right? So that's the kind of, so, you know, people talk about Erdogan and, and, and international media, they love to criticize him. I can tell you, I'm not going to tell you who I'm, I'm not going to be voting for Erdogan. I can tell you that. But don't mistake me for an Erdogan, uh, you know, sympathizer or anything like that. It's just that this is just how people think. This is just how things are, right? This is kind of how the election system, how the election is working. When people from Europe, they look at it from international media, they have no clue what's going on, right? So this is precisely one of the biggest reasons why Erdogan is getting voted. And I will say it's not a, he's not getting voted in for stupid reasons. He's getting voted for actual legitimate good reasons that you will likely want to see in a good democracy, which doesn't exist in my opinion. But that's the point that I, I also want to make. So things are a lot more complex. Don't get, uh, don't get confused by, you know, we have a lot of people that are red-pilled in international media, and then they believe international media about Turkish politics. Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. And the fact is, most people in Turkey, they, they don't know what they're talking about either. And there's good reasons for that as well, because, you know, a lot of people have trauma because of Erdogan's presidency and all of that. But I think that itself can be its own special, unique stream when you think about it. So that's 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 what I would like to add. I think for no other reason than obviously you know more than me, but I would say for the average American, I probably know a lot more than that. So for no other reason than to facilitate this comment swarm, I think Electorolu is going to win, is going to win not in the first round. He's going to get more votes in the first round. Then it's going to go to the runoff and then he's going to win. That's my prediction. So let us know in the comments who you think is going to be correct and on the stream who's going to be crying poo poo pee pee mode because they you know predicted it wrong me or david so let us yeah, know in yeah, the well, comments well, well, but before you move on before you move on, i want to make this one i want to make this one comment i mean in that in that situation look you know if you're going to be betting right if you're going to be betting which you shouldn't be betting because it's a sin but if you're going to be betting with hypothetical money and you want one side to win why would you bet that side Bet the opposite side because, you know, if, if you win the bet, you know, good for you. You were right. If you lose the bet, well, good for you. The side you wanted to win wins. So, you know, I don't think I'll be crying pee-pee poopa. <laughs> but well, the question it, it becomes, will certainly, it will certainly be interesting. It will certainly be interesting. I mean, it, it, is, it is down to what I'd like. We can, we, can, we can talk about, you know, who's going to win. One thing is certain. I mean, this election will go down the wire. Like, absolutely. That is, that is, that is very true. Yeah, and I encourage everybody to look at the rally size. I mean, this is like, it feels like, you know, America 2016, where like both sides, well, really not both sides. Trump was pulling massive rallies, and then Hillary just had like everybody that watched television all the time for the most part. But you have these huge rallies at each side's, you know, headquarters. Like each, each day, one side has a rally bigger than the last one. So it's, there's no doubt that while, yeah, the polls may be kind of always biased and skewed and Erdogan outperforms them, that this is a, everyone, a lot of people are picking sides. It's, you know, it's Erdogan versus everybody, Patriots versus everybody is, you know, they like to the patriots are in control <laughs> maybe not for long though but um before we move on from turkey itself david i want to ask with as far as the church goes in the situation with this election i want to get your take on how it fares and what each candidate's platform and where the future is going for the status of the ecumenical patriarchate in Constantinople, as well as the Cyprus issue. I'm kind of wondering the, the implications and the inside baseball on yeah. some of that. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit about current 
the current situation and this is insider information from yours truly look i live in istanbul i'm an orthodox christian i go to church insider info okay you're not going to get it from the better source and i have it on very 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 good authority now this this is going to get me in trouble but i have it on very very good authority this is not gospel or anything like that this is something that a lot of orthodox christians in the united states were already talking about i just want to confirm that those rumors are true what rumors the rumors that the Turkish government, rather, well, not that, but rather that the ecumenical patriarchate is, in some capacity, afraid of the Turkish government. Whether that is legitimate or not, that's a completely different discussion. But it is 100% true that the ecumenical patriarchate is completely afraid of uh, the Turkish government. They don't want to offend the government. They don't want to do, they don't do missionary work because of this. They try to keep to themselves precisely for this reason. And well, if you want an explanation for why the ecumenical patriarchate is siding with the United States, siding with Joe Biden, well, there you have it. I mean, it's a survive it's it's a survival mechanism of some sorts. Uh, having having made that comment, a very interesting thing that I saw uh, uh, someone pointed this out to me is that the one of the members of the table of six, Ali Babajan, he uh, in his party platform, a very interesting part of his party platform in regards to religious freedom is the status not of the ecumenical patriarchate but of the seminary in Heybeliada. So currently the seminary is closed due to it not being compatible with the Turkish curriculum. Patriarch Bartholomew has said for a very long time that he's fine, he's more than happy to make it adaptable to the Turkish curriculum. Doesn't matter what he says. It it's you know it's still closed. It's still closed by the government. In fact, the government even tried to destroy it uh, by you make you you know acting like they didn't know that it was still you know owned by the EP and all of that. So a lot of those kinds of things are going on. The uh, Ali Babajan's party explicitly and openly says that they're going to open up the seminary. That that's one of the things that he promises to do. That they're going to open the seminary. He says this very clearly. Says this very explicitly. And now Ali Babacan's party is not, is not he's, he used to be part of Erdogan's party. He was the finance minister and he's going to be the finance minister if Kılıçdaroğlu gets elected, right? Kılıçdaroğlu basically says that. And he's, he basically privatized everything in the Turkish economy and he managed the best parts of Erdogan's uh, economy, I guess. Uh, but, you know, his privatization also got a lot of criticism. But that's a different topic. But even if he doesn't get a lot of, you know, even if his party doesn't get a lot of votes, if Kılıçdaroğlu gets elected, there is a legitimate hope of the seminary, the EP seminary in Turkey being open, which will be quite interesting to see. Aside from that, uh, another interesting development, since we're talking about the church in, in Constantinople or in Istanbul, what do you want to call it? Dr. Sinanoğlu, who's one of the presidential candidates, he represents the nationalists, right? He is uh, he's in a coalition with the Victory Party, who's the, the sole responsible party that opened up the uh, Syrian refugee crisis that's going on in Turkey. They're the only reason why people are talking about it ex- as extensively as they have. Um, Sinanoğlu makes a very interesting note. He says that this Turkish government, until recently, the Turkish government never referred to the ecumenical patriarchate as the ecumenical patriarchate, but rather as the Greek patriarchate, right? The Greek representative, the Greek millet, right? The head of the Greek millet. But very recently, the Turkish government actually referred to the ecumenical patriarchate as the ecumenical patriarchate, meaning that they have officially recognized Patriarch Bartholomew's ecumenical status. And this is actually a huge step forward in diplomacy. And 
Dr. Sinan says, well, that's a mistake. You know, he says this, is a, this was a blunder that the Turkish government made, right? That the Turkish government just moved away from his policy because it's incompetent now. Uh, that's basically his take. Whether it's, it's a blunder or whether it's intentional, it's, it's still a very important update to understand the kind of diplomacy that is going on between the United States and, well, rather the government of Turkey and the Ecumenical Patriarchate. So I think those are the, some of the updates that I can I can give regarding the ecumenical patriarchate in Turkey. So it's, I I think it's quite you know it's 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 I think it's quite nice to see uh, that a party is actually openly talking about opening up the ecumenical patriarchate's seminary. And hey, I mean maybe it might facilitate the groundwork for uh, some some good work to be done in Turkey. I'll, I'll say I'll say that much. Well, and I'll say it so David doesn't have to. I think the the a lot of the prophecies, especially Metropolitan Neophytos says, is about a future kind of renaissance of evangelism in Anatolia, you know, in the formerly Greek, you know, parts, you know, of Turkey and in Turkey in general, and that, you know, comes after some of the more distressing elements of what has been predicted come about. But before we perhaps get into some other things going on in the church like some persecutions and some other schisms and some other nonsense going on. Is the Cyprus issue, is that something that's talked about in these electoral politics much in Turkey these days? And is that something that is, uh, you know, or is, is everyone kind of in agreement on that? Uh, well, the, well, the Cyprus issue is not even discussed at all in, in the current election. It's, it's a non-issue from, for the most part, at least from what I've seen. There's, I've, I've listened to various different talks that politicians gave, and there's no mention of Cyprus, basically. It might as well not exist. One thing I will say, Cyprus was a topic of conversation between me and a couple of friends of mine, and uh, a couple of friends of mine who went to Cyprus for, uh, for, you know, for military service, and basically they said, and this was very surprising, they, they said that uh, the Turkish part of Cyprus hates the Turkish government. So yeah, that's uh, that's one thing, and uh, it is also quite degenerate, as well. Um, so something to think about. <laughs> uh, I, I can I can say that's 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 the most I can say about Cyprus. Yeah, Cyprus is unfortunately I feel very degenerate on both sides, with like small pockets of holiness, like right around like the occupied zone in the middle of like the demilitarized zone. And of course, unfortunately, we have a few bishops there still holding out against the schismatics. We have Metropolitan Neophytos, Metropolitan Nikiforos, and to some degree, Metropolitan Athanasios, all you know, standing strong in support of Metropolitan Onufri in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Who, as we've seen, David, all it's just it just keeps getting worse. They're just slow rolling it every week. There's just one more restriction on the people going in, one more difficult task needed to be fulfilled to get communion and not have to recognize a bunch of demonic schismatics. And of course, this all comes as the Ukrainian offensive gets delayed and there's, you know, the militarization at these lavras and monasteries continues to increase. And we still see, you know, many, a few elements really in the Greek world supporting the schismatics despite fairly widespread international outcry against it. The Antiochians, of course, have condemned it outright. Most of the monasteries on Mount Athos have sided with Metropolitan Onufri with at least five or six explicitly refusing to even concelebrate with other Athenite monks who have recognized the schismatics. So it's it's really as far as the holy centers of orth it's it's almost pan-Orthodox, I guess you could say, in its understanding that this is a true persecution. And yet 
you know, it continues to go on and there's, and, and, and we still see, you know, the, the OCU will wave their tomos of autocephaly in everybody's face, despite the fact that it's being directly used to prop up demonic persecution. So David, I'm wondering your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, well, from an orthodox ecclesia, ecclesial angle, it seems like yeah, EP is basically acting like this isn't this isn't happening. They're they're closing their their eyes. It's like oh, they're playing the three monkeys, right? Basically, oh, nothing's going on, nothing's going on. But you know, much of the the global community, right? People say this. Uh, much of the global community, so called, is actually looking at this and they're realizing, yeah, this is not supposed to happen. I mean, what's going on over here? And and I think. The, the, I, I talked about this with a couple of friends of mine, and 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 I think this point is is very important, right? From a dip, I'm talking about from a purely diplomatic angle because I think a lot of people have already talked about the spiritual angle and like the genuine, actual, like the real human angle towards mm-hmm. it. But from a diplomatic standpoint, I think what you know what the church in Ukraine, what the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, head by Metropolitan Nufri, did for, is a diplomatic masterpiece. Uh, okay, they made it absolutely clear. They made it crystal clear that they're not siding with the Russian government. They've distanced themselves from the Russian patriarchate even, which they didn't have to do that, right? But they did that. And they have basically said, look, there's there's no excuse. Like, there's nothing you can use against us where you can, where you can say, oh, yeah, you're on the side of Russia, right? We've done everything that we possibly could have done, right? Everything that we could have done to make it clear that we're standing by Ukraine. So, like, let us be... Like, you know, let us treat the wounded, let us help the people in need, and you you know, you do your own thing. You know, you defend the country and all that. Yeah, you do that you do the cool stuff and I'll do the the spiritual stuff. And what is the you know, Ukrainian government saying? Um, I don't like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna take your I'm gonna take your monastery. Like that that that's basically what they're doing. And so at that stage it's pretty clear that the Ukrainian government is is I'll say I say clearly the Ukrainian government is clearly in many ways, in many of its factions, clearly possessed by Satan. This is, you can't you can't argue against it at this stage. The church has done literally every single thing they could have possibly do, and they're still being attacked by the Ukrainian government. So, from a diplomatic standpoint, I mean, the Ukrainian the church in Ukraine masterpiece, an absolutely fabulous masterpiece. Because, as I said, I think it's very clear that Patriarch Kirill kind of looks at what the church in Ukraine does as you know. He understands what is going on. He 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 looks at it and he okay, yeah, I get what I get what you're doing, why you're doing this. Don't worry, we're not gonna use this against you. You know, we understand, right? There's this kind of attitude, and he's and so there's no real I would say no real diplomatic rift, at least from my perspective. But they try to be good to the Ukrainian government as best as they could, and it doesn't work, right? Because the Ukrainian government is not interested in the Ukrainian people. The Ukrainian government is interested in certain agendas. Uh, certain spiritual agendas that align with the agenda of Satan, and that's basically uh, that's pretty much how I will look at look at this situation. When you make the good point that you know they basically did everything, and it still ended up happening how you know the demons wanted it to, and I think Dimitri would, you know, imagine that I'm speaking a bit as Dimitri here. He'd be remiss if I didn't say this, but it shows you. I mean, the question is, was it even worth it to kind of? you know, broach what had been going on traditionally to begin with. I think that's a, that's a question that is willing to be asked. And I'm in no place, of course, to condemn anybody in this situation. And I think Patriarch Kirill has made it very clear that no one should be from the pulpit of the Russian Orthodox Church condemning what the UOC is going through. That being said, it just poses a valuable life lesson that 
what is better? Is it better to assuage some of these people to an end that ultimately they'll never meet or, you know, to meet them head on? And I'm again, I'm making no condemnations. I think it just poses an interesting question. But as far as other things in the church, the, the same people that seem to still be willing to support the OCU also seem to have a have an apostate teaching in their mix. David, this is this is a bit of a diversion from what we usually talk about, I guess, on World War Now, but I think it's a little bit relevant. Uh, the oh, oh so you want to you want to get into the you want to get into my namesake of a completely different disposition <laughs> yeah i mean i i mean look yeah. people have already seen crazy things from david bentley hart but if you want to enlighten us to what he recently said i think that well, was a Substack post or something to well, someone that was curious about orthodoxy all right all right uh well it's not recent apparently to my knowledge it's it happened a couple of months ago but uh that's relatively As, recent. To, to kind of to kind of give you an idea about uh, you know what this clown is about, uh, they you know DBH is basically this kind of like liberal urbanite, uh, you know, so-called Orthodox Christian. I, I will say name only, and he is known for preaching certain heresies such as well liber- liberalism and things like that, right? But also you know universalism is a big one for him and he is generally very much in line with the liberal world order right so that pretty much characterizes him and there's a lot of rumors going on around him you know how he's you know is he going to church or not uh seems like uh, this is what i've heard from people seems like oh he doesn't because he is allergic to incense seems like he's allergic to something else but i let i'll let the people decide what that is but the recent comment that we found from his paid substack is that he's talking about, you know, he makes it very, he makes a very clear comment where he says, and I'm going to be quoting directly from him. The orthodoxy to which I converted when I joined the OCA 35 years ago was the urbane and sophisticated orthodoxy of Schmemann, Meyendorf, and the whole Russo-Parisian tradition they imported to America. Now, no disrespect to Father Schmemann or Father Meyendorf, but uh, you kind of get the idea here, right? And he says, that is a vanished world. The orthodox hierarchy stupidly admitted floods of former evangelicals into the church without instituting any procedure of instruction in the tradition. Now, lo and behold, American orthodoxy has just become another wing of the American religion, and a particularly sinister one at that. Keep your distance. Now, it's very interesting that he says, you know, modern orthodoxy became a... American orthodoxy is a modern, you know, another wing of the American religion. It's very ironic when he is the one who is defending Americanism. He is the one who's a total shill for Americanism, total shill for liberalism, total shill for low-test BS political views. And then he dares to say, oh, I'm, you know, Orthodox became American. No, you are the one who is Americanized and you're trying to Americanize Orthodox Christianity. And he's basically saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't have let these former evangelicals in without instructing, instructing them, instructing them in what exactly? Instructing them into denying orthodox dogma and tradition yeah right so people like this right and i I, it makes me really happy to see that people like this this are just you know getting themselves away because the fact is you know they don't really like orthodox they don't really they're not really orthodox they really worship their own views their own beliefs and they want to destroy orthodox christianity so that's kind of how i will look at this well again i'll say it very clearly uh this heretic what this heretic uh, but this clear, open heretic is spouting. And for those who don't know, David Bentley Hart is the foremost preacher of universalism and the rehabilitation of originism in the Orthodox Church. He's unfortunately held as this, he's 
written teaching documents very recently within GoArch. He's spoken at GoArch conferences and everything. So it's very disappointing. I've inquired towards multiple sources if that will be stopping after this blatant. He's literally telling people don't go to Orthodox churches. And I find it so funny. These same people, you, know, you scratch them a little bit. And like David said, they're the most Americanist of the bunch. And they're like, you ask them, where are these bastions of Americanist Protestantists? You know, when we talked to Father Joseph Gleason about evolution and creation, we commented how those that are pro-evolution always are the first to call us you know, anti-evolution, orthodox, call us Protestant, call us evangelical, you know, we're white Protestantizing the church. Look, look, when I was a Protestant, I was sympathetic towards evolution. It wasn't until I realized orthodoxy was true that I was full-on creationist. And when you ask these people, where are these bastions of Protestantizing fundamentalism? And where is it? Oh, it's the Ephraimite monasteries in Jordanville, the least Americanist institutions in American orthodoxy. <laughs> literal greek language monasteries and russian seminary that is you know surveilled by the cia and fbi so i think that kind of explains where these uh you know that you shouldn't really take these people seriously when they talk about oh they, they let in all and he's like what decrying people becoming orthodox i mean this is just demonic behavior and i think you know condemning types like this and making it very clear that his teachings aren't accepted by the church should be higher on the priority of, you know, maybe people like the Assembly of Bishops than, uh, you know, condemning certain priests for unfortunate canonical irregularities. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly. And as I said, there's, there's a lot of attacks. From, like, it, various different parts of the Orthodox world have very different problems. I mean, as I said, Turkey has its own problems. America has its own problems. Russia has its own problems. Ukraine has its own problems. And these are very different kinds of different kinds of problems that all of these all of these areas of the world is experiencing and a lot of them happen to be very much related to geopolitics though it's very clear that it's especially one of the biggest dangers to orthodox christianity again is westernism americanism it's it's particularly that that we must kind of steer ourselves away from and hey i'll i'll be the one of the first ones to admit it. i know there's this kind of you know, that popular view that a lot of Orthodox people have is, oh, you know, if you're not supposed to be academic or academic is you want to go away from it. Now, I'll, you know, I'll, I will defend academicism. Actually, I think it's not that bad. I think it's actually, I think it's good. But just like there can be bad spiritual guides, which there are, there can also be bad academics. And so the way in which we can kind of deal with people like David Bentley Howard and others is, is those who are very faithful to the Orthodox tradition and they're defending it and they're expressing um, the, the Orthodox faith and tradition in the, in the manner that they are experienced in, right? So if they're a spiritual person, they, they do it by their acts or if they're an intellectual person, they do it by, you know, the explaining and expositing the doctrines of the faith. So I think that is something that it's, as I said, I'm very, I'm very happy that I see uh, this guy complaining about this, heretic complain about this, because it basically means that, you know, orthodoxy is kind of going through a process of, in America, going through a process of, you know, having, you know, standing on solid grounds instead of on, you know, this this stupid, stupid ground that this guy wants to establish. No, I totally agree. At the beginning, I thought you were about to make an impassioned call for a pan-Orthodox council to resolve ecclesiological, theological, and semi-geopolitical issues, which, you know, that would be interesting, but, you know, there is no emperor to call something like that, so maybe that'll come in the future. But 
uh, I wanted to say in defense of, you know, again, Schmemann and Meyendorf, I doubt David Bentley Hart is on the same page as him, considering at one point Schmemann said, under no circumstances will I, you know, be the head of a seminary of pot-smoking homosexuals. And I think David Bentley Hart is clearly rather the church be full of pot-smoking homosexuals instead of apparently pious former evangelicals. But before we wrap this up, before I maybe get some of David's last words on everything going on, I want to do a quick rundown of some news. Of course, Putin at the BRICS summit, the upcoming, is not appearing in person. He'll be appearing via Zoom because South Africa did not withdraw from the International Criminal Court, which has that arrest warrant out for him. So they've just decided to play it safe. He's going to appear by Zoom. I don't know if he was even going to appear in person anyway, but he's appearing by Zoom regardless. Another big element that's going on is the stuff going on in Serbia and Kosovo. A few weeks back, we reported that there was a deal, the EU deal, that Vucic was apparently willing to sign that guaranteed Serb and municipalities in North Kosovo autonomy. But apparently, Kurti and the Albanian Kosovar government have rejected that. That, of course, resulted in, as we talked about before, the Serbs boycotting those elections. And now it seems that no deal is going to be possible at all and that a more even more conflict is you know possibly going to flare up there and you know maybe that'll drive vucic back towards you know back towards russia a bit more because he was very flirtatious with the eu so we're of course going to be keeping up with that and again yeah the ukrainian counteroffensive is coming up greek elections are actually also coming up i have done too much research into them but it appears that through some nonsense, people think Mitsotakis is going to stay in power. And I have to say, Greeks, you know, there's some great Greek political commentary. As I've said before, Metropolitan Neophytos, you know, in a near prophetic way, he's able to, you know, through the guidance he's gotten from saints like St. Paisios and St. Yakovos, he's been able to have this foresight and this vision. But as far as actual Greek politics, Greeks, you need to get better at politics. It's bad. All it is is ban right-wing government, you know, reinstitute center left far left and then center right that all do ultimately the same thing ruin the economy and then submit to zog so i think uh you need to do better there but regardless i'll probably be keeping up with that a little bit after the turkish elections but be sure to keep up with us on youtube turn the bell on we're going to have the post up before the stream obviously for a few days so you can set the reminder we're going to be live streaming the election and the results me, David, Dimitri, maybe we'll have some other people coming on in there. But David, is there anything you want to leave us with before we sign off? Well, other than showing my channel, telling you to check it out, telling you to watch my videos. Go ahead, if you man. Uh, you know, you can, I'm, on, I'm on YouTube, I'm on Twitter, but my videos are on YouTube. If you want to watch some videos on Orthodox Christian Theology, then, you know, come over to my channel. Other than that, there's really nothing that particularly comes to my mind so you know be ready when the election comes i think it will be fun um and you know whatever whatever result comes i think it will be quite interesting to see what's going to happen in the future because this is one of those kinds of kinds of elections where i don't know it's 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 just it's just going to be interesting i think it's at the very least it's going to be closed unlike most of the turkish elections where if you look at the electoral history for most elections not all of them, because the referendum, right, was was very close. For example, the Istanbul mayor election was very close. But this is going to be, I think, one of the few, very, very few presidential elections that is actually going to go down to the wire. So, you know, I'm I'm quite excited to see uh, what's going to happen, regardless of the results. And I think this, I've said it before, I think this election could easily be more consequential than 2024 in America. This is, we're at a big pivot point geopolitically, and Turkey is in... You know, it's in that region, the Eastern Mediterranean Black Sea. That's like the center of the world island where 
this stuff is just getting really real. So, you know, keep it all in your prayers. Keep the church in your prayers. Keep the church in Ukraine in your prayers amidst these persecutions. Be sure to subscribe to David, David Erhan on YouTube, Medwhite Acolyte on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe to us on Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. That's where everything goes down. Our articles, all episodes of our podcast, our premium show, Do Not Miss Ether Hour. We've had some fantastic recent episodes about the early days of the Donbass War and some of the heroes there. Givi, Motorola, Strelkov, now recently, as well as Mozgovoy, Zakharchenko, and Stremusov. We've covered all these guys and some extremely not politically correct, very much not okay for YouTube content. So check those out on Substack. Your support really means a lot to us. Follow me on Twitter, GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri on Twitter, OCanonist. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now, Tele, T-E-L-E. And yeah, like this video, subscribe, comment, whether you're listening on Substack or YouTube. It really helps us out. And with all of that, thank you. Christ is risen. God bless everybody.